0: Hello and welcome to the Monocle Culture Show with me, Robert Bound, where today we're going to review the Cindy Sherman show at London's National Portrait Gallery. The American artist appears in almost all of her own photography-based work, always in costume, often heavily made up, and stylized to hide her real features, and maybe her identity. Cindy Sherman is an artist hiding in plain sight. Well, sort of. This is the sort of trouble that you can often get into, trying to define the work and practice of an artist such as Sherman. There is so much meaning and illusion washing around in her pictures, but somehow, tantalisingly, it's always difficult to define. She conjures images of Hitchcock blondes, gamin French new wave actresses, old master portraits, women trammelled rather than deified by fashion, society photos, masks, clowns, you name it. What's not tough to define is Sherman's stature in the contemporary art world. She's widely considered as one of the greatest living, breathing greats, defined by intelligent wit and the sort of work that is recognisably Sherman, a brand name recognition that helps with placing her work in the key public and private collections of the world. To talk about Cindy Sherman today, we welcome director of Black Box Projects Kathleen Fox Davies and the curator Francesca Gavin. Welcome both to the program.
1: Hello, hi there.
0: Before we switched on the microphones, we talked about some of the things we might talk about. I mean, Sherman's there's chunky. a long list. You to can read really, this.
2: You could pick one aspect of her work and have an entire program about it. It's yeah. so chunky.
0: Those there is there is great there are great riches. Francesca then. You've piped up first, I'm mm. afraid. Oh, well. I'm going to come to you first. <laughs> Damn. What does Cindy Sherman's... It might seem like a funny question, but let's try and talk about what we're looking at. What does Cindy Sherman's work look like? Number one, presented with?
2: photography. Yep. This is all photographs, and it's all photographs that are largely self-portraiture. She creates them on her own. In her studio she dresses up usually the earlier work is all black and white and then increasingly from around 1983 onwards it became fully color and then kind of really hyper saturated color and the images get bigger and bigger there's a lot of costume it's quite horrific in a lot of ways and it gets increasingly horrific throughout her career it's very disturbing but also really fascinating insight into so many different aspects of what the image is
0: And as you said, some, some of the images are horrific. There are things that are, you know, she's kind of riffs on tropes from kind of horror movies, kind of pretty nasty pornography and all the rest of it. But also, there is something unnerving, Kathleen, about... The, the the slightly the t- slightly too slapped on makeup the kind of like wonky mascara there is something strange it's ab- grotesque about that there is something grotesque about yes. it. Well, when you when you how do you respond to Cindy Sherman's work? Because it's so such part of the contemporary of, and it's so recognisable. But what does it? What's it bring out in you? When you walk around this show, what were you scratching well, your head thinking about?
1: Her entire body of work, over 40 years, it's all self-portraiture, but it's a little bit misleading calling it that because mm-hmm. really it's, yeah. it's an investigation into identity and who we are and how we look and what we look at and what we present. And Cindy Sherman is a master of the social critical photography. She came of an age when feminism was on in its rise in the 1970s she uses uses herself as the palette she uses the photography as her medium which is somewhat deceptive because you assume that what you're seeing in that camera is real because it's a photograph of herself but what she's done is it's it's entirely play acting and it's performance and it's it's kind of incredible the range of performance that she is able to emote from herself from a young twenty something, dealing with some quite heavy, heavy subject matter and mm-hmm. different persona into what you were saying, Francesca, as she gets older and is grappling with this concept of what it means to be a woman, with society's views of what a woman should be, and and the ideas of aging and how you present yourself. And it's it's hard to look at, and with some of the older work, particularly the society portraits. I mean, she is flying a bit close to the sun because it's also a critique of the people that support her career. I know it's hilarious. Um, You're selling
2: like caricatures of was, your own collectors. It was yeah. it was
1: amazing. And what what's what's most incredible is over forty five years of work is in that room, not counting the the journals from starting from when she was eight years old. Yeah. That this has been a lifelong pursuit of of figuring out how how we look and how we're perceived and how how she wants to be perceived. So you spend room after room after room looking at over 180 images by Cindy Sherman. All Most of them are of Cindy Sherman, and you still have no idea who she is when you leave.
0: It's exactly that. There is such a wealth of material on display here. It's amazing stuff. And, yeah, you come out... You can't know less, almost, than you mm. kind of get you, you. started going in with.
2: Well, I love that you don't actually know what she looks like. That's what's also fascinating. Mm. Like, when you see photographs of Cindy Sherman, like, photographed outside of this, which are rare, because she's very private, it's actually amazing, eh, how beautiful and kind of attractive and normal-looking she is. But what's so interesting, when you read about the earlier stages of her career when she was at Buffalo and beginning to experiment mm. with this, is how natural the process was. She started dressing up in her grandmother's clothes that were left in the closet Mm -hmm. and then she would just dress up and turn up to school in like a different outfit every single day and it was like a very natural process she was working on the reception at artist space in new york and that whole kind of pictures generation Mm -hmm. period and when new york was kind of edgy and she would just come in dressed as a nurse
1: or to her she, well, she, yeah. used, she used it almost as, as armor because she felt she talks about how she felt really overwhelmed moving to the big city and being there alone and felt like she had to put on this big persona in order to survive and I've, I've heard a, a story once where she was getting dressed for an opening and she kept looking at herself going something's not right so she grabs a pillow sticks it under her dress and said that's it I'm ready and she goes to her own opening as a pregnant woman it's so amazing. because that's yeah. the, the most fun way to socialize so her entire existence is this play acting and I that's the amazing Part about this artist is that no one really knows who Cindy Sherman is, even after decades of critique of her work. But I think the reason why we all
2: relate to it so much as viewers is because actually, isn't this kind of how we view our own feelings about ourselves? Like where do I fit? What do I want to be? I don't feel comfortable with my presentation. Do I fit in? Am I a Hitchcock blonde? Mm. No. Will I fit into a Pasolini film? Maybe. You know what I mean? It's that kind of that lack and our relationship to media and that lack of Mm. Security in ourselves really comes through, which always gives it a kind of vulnerable, hysteric feeling.
1: But particularly with some of the later work that does get more digitized, more placed in this world of really the unreal, that there's no way that it it could be something that she's just created and stumbled upon without use of a of green screen and, and digital technology. She's making a real comment on sort of the Instagram age and this idea of selfies and who we are. And I was walking around this show and for better, or for worse, I kept thinking, shame on me, of the Kim Kardashian selfies book that yeah. sold millions. And it's it's this woman taking a photograph of herself in every situation, mm-hmm. but it's the same person over and over and over again. But is it? And that's the comment that she's, she's sort of making. And when you stand in the gallery that... Only a couple of weeks ago, had Martin Parr with a room of his own self-portraits through yeah. his career, which were disarming in a completely different way. It really gave a different context to how you you view these images, and particularly how we view women.
0: That is such a obviously a central thing to it. That idea of the gaze seems to seems to me to change slightly through her career because mm-hmm. it starts with that kind of that, that rear window, that specific Hitchcock film rear For window Hitchcock. about James Stewart, who's 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 disabled or he has an accident anyway, and He's unable to look around, so he's unable to move around. So he looks and he looks and he becomes obsessed, like Hitchcock, obviously, with this particular sort of platinum blonde. And then, and and it feels like at the beginning you're almost looking at Cindy Sherman assuming the male gaze of of what it's like to look at women. And then, and then she looks very, and then she seems to, she seems to only have her own gaze or a particular gaze, which seems like a feminine gaze if I can pretend to know what that is. Uh, it seems like she's a woman looking at women as she gets later in her career, but she's critiquing the male gaze at younger in her career, I agree, because mm. that was the same
2: kind of period that you're getting like theorists like Laura Mulvey doing visual pleasure and narrative cinema, which mm. is a really influential essay that I really recommend, looking at deconstructing narrative and how shots are created. So all the untitled film stills are included. They're all on display here. These are these smaller black and white works. And actually, probably I, like, love, I love that room. But they yeah. literally feel like still from different films throughout history, and you're looking at it going, oh, is it that film? Oh, no, it's not quite that. Yeah. And it has this kind of Lynchian feeling in a lot of them. There's a lot of melodrama, but also really imbued with a sense of narrative. It is super filmic.
0: You want to know exactly what happened before and after that shot was taken, which yeah, which f- pretend film exactly. it is from. Yeah. But
2: then what you're really aware of in that early work is it is sort of often she's outside, she's often in landscapes, and then increasingly it becomes more and more internal and interior spaces and they're actually quite claustrophobic Mm. i mean i actually found that really interesting when you're looking at unpeeling the male gaze the fantasy of the early black and white work and you're increasingly getting into let's say her internal view the kind of disquiet there and what actually how much in a weird way even though it's so artificial how much realer that is, mm. in a way, which is it's really interesting to watch. I mean, I for me, what really shocked me seeing this show, which I think is a really great show in showing the breadth of her work. Like I went to the one that was at MoMA years ago. And to be honest, I found this actually better installed. Obviously, the National Portrait Gallery focusing on portraiture. But when you look at the middle section of her work, which is like, let's say, 87, the fa- 90. The fashion and, and fantasy. Just after the fashion period, mm. we start going into like the really horror stuff. God, it's scary. Like when you're there's seeing.
0: A, there's, these, a room, there's a room which is kind of pretty pornographic and it's pretty. Is, is this the stuff you mean? That's yeah. later.
1: That's, that's later. later. I think yeah. you're talking about the fairy tales. Yeah, sequence, the fairy tales are oh. terrifying. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, yeah, they
2: were really, really. I mean, it actually shocked me that you could come back to work from that period and still feel that sense of, oh my God, that's terrifying. Mm. Because actually, fairy tales kind of are, and I, I love a little bit of horror.
1: So, But it's still playing into like media tropes and like but narratives. Part of her motivation for creating that was because her, um, her initial work was so successful, and it was purchased by every major museum and every major collector, and it sort of played into the opposite of what she was trying to say of, you don't own me, you can't own how you see me, how I see myself, and how I'm going to present myself. And so she really took that idea to the edge and created pictures that she thought no one would want to buy. That's what's amazing. is you go in that room and under every one of those is a collector's name, yeah. and that's in someone's home. Yeah. And they're they really are the or stuff their of storage, of, <laughs> yeah, or their storage. But they're the stuff of nightmares, <laughs> yeah, yeah, in large scale.
0: <laughs> yeah, they're not really, they're not key over the mantelpiece, which like a gin and tonic. And my I art mean,
2: someone's. I mean, I, I mean, you don't really want to hide Cindy Sherman. Yeah. Then. but actually, also, what's really interesting is looking. The repetition of fashion as well throughout everything. So she's done collaborations with Chanel and Balenciaga and Comme des Garcons notably Mm. originally. And actually, so she's playing into the machine of the creation of female identity and desire. And then you're watching her go, how can I make this as disgusting and uncomfortable and weird looking as possible? I mean, the exhibition ends on a room full of very large scale, more recent Chanel collaborations like her in these, these are
0: sort of hilarious. Yeah, I know they're yeah. really
2: ridiculous. They're bonkers. And also the Chanel clothes, you look at it and go, Why are you wearing that Chanel? <laughs> and I like a bit of Chanel, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like it's not like yeah. it's going like it's awesome. the but d- there's desire. But then of the model goes.
0: is you know she she plays a sort of very dowdy woman, it, it kind of superimposed on a sort of Scottish landscape, wearing obviously some amazing couture clothes but with her leg in a caliper, yeah. totally like sort of looks <laughs> like she's kind of hasn't slept for a week and if she has it's been in a Scottish Bothy. Yeah. I mean, like the, mo- the anti-fashion. The like, fashion as and anti-fashion. And I would love to have been at that meeting between Cindy Sherman and the creative directors of Chanel, whatever, I... whoever it is, Balenciaga, kind of going, well, what I want to do is drag your stuff through the mud. Yeah. It's a I mean, strange the got some you know, stuff. artistic it's choice. It's like
2: lipstick on your teeth. Yeah. Like, literally, mm-hmm. like, how can I make myself as unattractive as physically possible? And yet you kind of... But while wearing some beautiful item yeah. of clothing that doesn't look that beautiful anymore.
1: No, they're not aspirational images at all. And um, Cindy Sherman's actually been quoted as saying that she thinks it's disgusting all the things that people will do to make themselves beautiful. And so when she started being hired by these, um, these big fashion houses she purposely went out of her way to make them quite scathing critiques of the fashion world and and the superficiality of it and what was amazing is they kept hiring her over yeah. and over and over again knowing that it wasn't going to be complimentary to mm. their brand but what she was saying and where that fit into the bigger conversation in society almost trumped yeah. any mm. other motivation that they might have it is
0: it is fascinating mm. i mean there is a, gr- a fanta- fantastically interesting tension going on there mm. in that in that final room I wanted to talk about an earlier series of hers, the one that you simply uses magazine covers. I loved that one.
2: What I loved about them, and so you, they're, they're all in sets of three, so mm. you have the original image, a kind of fusion Morphing, between a morphed yeah. image between her and it, and then her kind of horrifying grimacing like exaggerated <laughs> yeah. version of the cover, and it makes you look at the original like beautiful thing in such a different way I mean it's so incredible but those were actually my greatest surprise in the exhibition and I don't think those have been exhibited since no then. I'd read about
0: no. them and not seen them and they they were one holly and I walked around together and we loved that room because it was the again again taking the worst possible picture that you could supposedly the worst idea of a picture that you'd put on a a uh, front cover of a magazine, the kind of one eye closed, the mouth open, the Like too makeup. much lipstick.
2: Yeah. Like pretending. But it's also, it's kind of also really interesting mm. from a contemporary point of view where we're much more literate about drag. Because it has that kind of satirical drag take on something. Yeah. Like almost that like post John Waters drag where like you've got really exaggerated everything. Yeah. Like personality, concept, highlighting what at first seems just like a girl in a swimsuit posing on the cover of like. Mademoiselle yeah. or whatever 70s magazine they were doing I thought they were an incredible series it's worth going just to see those actually
1: but if you look at the text on those magazines that she chose there was a real purpose to it as well so the Jerry Hall piece the big headline is how to calm men's fears about growing women's strength the next you go to and it's how important is it to be beautiful 62,000 women weigh in and there is Cindy Sherman made up as you said almost looking grotesquely in drag not even successfully in drag and they are something quite extraordinary. And it's the first time they were ever actually seen together since 1976. And wow. that's why we've not seen them before. Yeah, They were they were purchased, put into a private collection, and that was that. And they are, I think, just as an important comment today as they yeah. would have been in mm. the 70s rise of feminism. Actually, no, arguably wo- even more so now.
0: Yeah, they're kind of worrisome, deep, meaningful, and hilarious yes. at the same time. And it's a clean sweep in that room. Humour
2: is <laughs> also a really important part of the work full stop. Yeah. I mean, obviously, she does clowns for a large period, and that's a immediate take Not on funny humor. terrifying I it's sad they <laughs> were very sad i thought i mean there is a sadness but also like in the earlier black and white period where she's like dressing up in these kind of clown like characters it is a play on humor like it is make there is it's a really dark humour, but this work is also can be very funny
0: i'd like to take you back to we talked about it right at the top of the show when she was i don't know 10 years old ish certainly before she was a teenager she did, she made a thing called the cindy book where That's she brilliant. took she took or she took photographs that maybe her parents had taken of her on family trips family holidays and made a scrapbook of them and highlight and by around her face her body her on the swing her standing next to a waterfall whatever it may be kind of tame ordinary polite family pictures of, of them doing holiday stuff and she was obsessed or she was very interested in her image and her presentation of herself at that age—it's almost like nothing changed. Mm. There's a picture. There's a picture of her dressing up with her best, her best friend, and they're like little old ladies in the in the in the suburban street where she grew up, when at the age of eleven or something. I mean, there is such a li- there is such little mm. difference. Obviously, there is a great there is a the great mind of an artist at work behind so much of this body of work. But it's strange to see such a similarity between what she's doing now, as she was when she was a, a, Play a child. Play acting as a child, yeah. What, what do
2: we make but of that? But don't you always find that like creative people are like that? David yeah. Beckham was playing football on telly when he was eight. Yeah. You know, Michael Jackson, obviously, was. My, if I'm allowed to talk about Michael Jackson, was performing at the age of three. Yeah. Essentially, maybe the traumas and questions we have in our lives do begin in childhood. Yeah. I know I'm still obsessed with the things that I was obsessed with in childhood. I'm just older now. I yeah. think that's quite natural. But actually, I think that's a repeated thing that you find with a lot of artists, that they're revisiting a lot of the experiences
1: and in this case it definitely feels related to but some the specificity, kind of trauma but the specificity
0: yeah. of it is so it's
1: crazy yeah. it was the labelling and, and yeah. you could see the change in her handwriting as she actually was growing older and she was learning how to put the apostrophe in that um, throughout the pages but every single image was circled as you said even when there was only a sing- singular figure it was still circled just yeah. so you were clear yes. that one's her underneath it saying that's me that's me that's me sometimes three in a row so under every yeah. single circle
0: you feel like suddenly she had a, a sister was born that was the favorite, mm. or something. Something put a nose out of giants. Something. Something happened. There's something
1: oh. slightly manic about it yeah. that you see, and you do see that that almost manic approach to it still throughout her career I'm never I, completely,
0: I completely understand her it's fine
1: <laughs> but this is also the period where like the, like the
2: the family photograph is becoming booming exploding and where like ideas of home photos and the actual object of the photographic image in a personal way becomes really accessible you have like a huge rise of Kodak photography mm. this is, like everyday photos films in the same way that obviously that's even expanded more with the rise of digital photography the 70s in particular is really a moment in the 60s 70s, 80s, those t- three decades are like photos change. And I think her fascination with her own image is intertwined with
1: that. But it's the rise of advertising as yeah. well, of the family and what what it means to be a woman and what it means to be a family and part of a society. And, and she's com- she's continuing to revert back to media and to advertising and to fashion magazines when she's referencing her own work and finding inspiration. And you, you see that with what she started creating at eight years old. But what's also
2: interesting is like a lot of those characters there are, let's say, like the more every day and then she goes into this period where she's really looking at like hyper exaggerated glamour images I mean so how do you relate yourself in like the everyday suburban experience in middle of nowhere upstate New York with like what you're watching on television or in a Hitchcock film yeah and that's a really interesting tension the, the other in you
0: yeah and the, the, the themes the themes which we, we set out the American century fashion, the male gaze the female gaze, aging femininity all these things and advertising all wrapped up up together they are i don't know I didn't find them explicit in anything. I found them sort of implicit and subtle, and I think there's something there's something you can't stop looking at these pictures. I'd get, happily go and walk around that show again tomorrow because there is something kind of unknowable and slippery about Cindy Sherman. Mm. Of course, the fact that you never know what she really looks like and all the rest of it, but actually, just about the themes are they kick off something in your brain, but you can't quite define it somehow. I think she she is an in, I sh, I should imagine as a curator and as a critic, she must be an interesting subject because she is so slippery.
2: What's also so interesting is that this show represents a lot of the bodies of work, but let's say there's like four, five pictures for each series, there are many more images that aren't being shown here, which is also what a body of work that you can create. That is a constant reworking of the same, let's say, methodology of dress up and self photography, and how much you can make out of that. Sim- that similar process use. I mean, they they recreate the studio in the middle, or at least attempt the idea yeah. of recreating the studio. God, I want to go in that studio. Also, that's incredibly—it's what fascinates. The shelves of the shelves yeah, of kind of yeah. pr-
0: fake boobs and yeah. uh, and sort of prosthetic noses and, and
2: weird makeups. Yeah, yeah. I mean, also, I but it. also, like, how the interesting. She doesn't. She works on her own. This yeah. is all within herself in a mirror and a button that she presses or like a timer, and that's so interesting to me. Like, wow, the intimacy of the process. We're seeing the results, but the, you know, the journey there must be really interesting. Yeah. And like, how she's going? Mm, I want to make my eyebrows pinker or whatever it is, you know, that kind of creation. Yeah.
0: And when I was in that studio when I was in the the mocked up studio part of the exhibition, I thought, well there she is in her in her in her studio apartment or whatever in Greenwich. I I kind of wanted to nip out for a packet of cigarettes or a pint of milk halfway through the dressing up process. I feel that I bet she like she dressed up as a nurse to go and to, to, to man the phones at the gallery or whatever. Yeah. I bet she goes down to the corner shop, down to the bodega for a, for, a, for, a, for a beer I mean, dressed as half the dressed as a society clown society heiress the clown the whatever it might be right?
2: can you imagine what a clown like that walking through the terrifying. streets of New York oh my god
0: it's kind of like a Bruce Nauman work yeah, I think it's, te- it's terrifying huge orange um, yeah there is well thank you for your wit and wisdom on Cindy's show and God there's so much to talk about I mean
2: I could just we could keep going I feel we could yeah. I
0: love I just love her work I think it's absolutely incredible it is that past the show Francesca we're going to start with you where we talk about what it made you think about the kind of things that you would uh, riff on if you were critiquing it as indeed you have and you wanted to talk about Hollywood and the creation of glamour
2: Francesca. yeah really became, I think for me like looking at those images and this creation of the image really reminded me of particularly the 1930s and that Huge rise in Hollywood of the creation of these iconic women, yeah. and I kind of wanted to unpick that creation. I became really—I I, one of my favorite podcasts out there is *You Must Remember This*, which Karina Longworth does. She's an incredible journalist, and I really recommend the series where she unpicks old Hollywood, and she basically is going through, let's say, six degrees of John Crawford or something like this. <laughs> wow! Or like an unpicks the, their, their, the campus
0: podcast. Oh my world, god! Possibly? It's
2: honestly it's fabulous. <laughs> or like lo, all about blondes who get killed in Hollywood or die yep. from over. That,
0: that'll do it.
2: Or she basically went through the whole of Hollywood Babylon and basically fat-checked it and went through the different period. But what I became out with is looking at that kind of creation of glamour, you end up learning more and more about things like early plastic surgery mm. and things like that, too. Like Joe, Mar- Obviously, Marilyn Monroe had a chin implant that dissolved, which was quite disgusting to think about. Marlena Dietrich was rumoured to have teeth pulled to create her killer cheekbones. She denied this. Uh-huh. Rita Hayworth, amazingly, because she was very Latina, because she was from Mexico, in order before her career, she went through three years of painful hair electrolysis to raise her forehead. So it, you see very early pictures of her as a dancer. But also like, the idea of like, the physical trauma, the idea that like, MGM would have 52 people in the makeup department alone. That you, these individuals, these actual single images are created by this huge team of like people patting your nose and putting in like bits of filler and, like, actually, like, sometimes they would have prosthetics in their faces. I think there's a great Burt Lancaster quote saying, there's nothing here that's real. I think what was the quote? (laughs) It's amazing. you Like, and sometimes it goes wrong when it, I mean, plastic surgery going wrong then. Can you even imagine? Like, Mary Pickford noticeably had a the silent movie star. Yeah. In the 30s had a facelift that went really wrong. She could barely move her face afterwards. So if you look at the very rare, late Mary Pickford films, There's barely any movement going on.
0: There's such a good film in this.
2: I know. I know. I mean, mm. I mean,
0: I know. You know. I mean, like Sunset Boulevard has been made. It's that's the theme. Well, she
2: also had, like, Gloria Swanson. Gloria Swanson also had early plastic surgery. Joan Crawford, when she had plastic surgery in the fifties, when she was resurrecting career, said, "The boobs are new. The face is new. The only thing that's old is my ass," which I think (laughs) is amazing. (laughs) But I, I become really interested that even we look at those like ultimate icons of glamour, and you think it's just you can feel like the Vaseline on the lens. But how does that influence an entire century of our feelings of self-worth? And how does it influence, or even just like, how does the advertising industry intertwine? Because these people were products; they were created as products. So I became really interested in the idea of how narrative and Hollywood
1: is intertwined with ideas of like fantasy and and particularly female fantasy. I'm still just baffled with the concept of having a facelift in the 1930s. That just sounds incredibly reckless. <laughs> so, yeah. so I'm a bit distracted you know, you by feel that.
0: that. You feel like that it was essentially kind of rudimentary building materials. It would have been plaster and. I mean, this this is not sophisticated. If you
2: look at plastic surgery, World War One was the real moment where it starts getting exact. Everything that's weird in the world starts from war. I find, like, war is like it's basically war or pornography that drives technology. So, World War One, obviously, huge, terrible facial disfigurements, and that's when you really see the early rises of plastic surgery, the experimental medicine, and like uses of different materials and the creations of faces to try to make them look like faces again.
1: But isn't that incredible that we take that idea of restoring something that's absolutely broken? and apply it to the female face on a daily basis. And that's the bit where it gets really disturbing. And You talk about the grotesque and, and things that come out of, um, you know, this is a technology that came out of war, and all of a sudden it's what's defining us. I mean, what's also interesting now. is looking at the Hollywood images. It wasn't just women,
2: which is interesting. Clark Gable, John Wayne, Burt Lancaster, they all had stuff done too. Yeah. But also what I find really interesting is we all think of this period in history as like, oh, they were just naturally perfect. They weren't. Well, and men were men and
0: women were made of plaster of Paris. Yeah, <laughs> How exactly. Sexist,
2: but mm. but they also they, they weren't. Which is there's interesting. No, there's a book that also came out recently, well a few years ago, which was looking at like continuity photographs. So basically, looking at people like when they're off duty, when they're like you know not perfect, and that's also really fascinating to kind of compare and contrast. Yeah, like when the Vaseline's come off and you're a little bit like Contents you can may see have settled the, in transit, the caked foundation a bit more.
0: Yeah. Wow. Okay. Plenty of fertile... A weird reference, I know. Plenty of fertile films. Not at all. Um, (laughs) Francesca talks about Hollywood and the creation of glamour by by fair fair means and foul. Mm. Um, Kathleen... On the other hand, you want to talk about unretouched women.
1: Yes, I want a completely different direction. Um, There is an incredible show on at the moment in Arles at the Mm -hmm. Photography Festival um, that is called The Unretouched Woman. And it's looking at books that were published. um, There were three books published in the 70s, uh, about the same time that Cindy Sherman was um, making her start. And it was looking at female photographers photographing women and behind the scenes ideas of of the home life and when the makeup is stripped off and when you're not posing. Um, So we're looking at works by Abigail Heyman, Susan Mazalas and Eve Arnold. But their their photographs really started in the 1950s onwards. And you've got um, Abigail Heyman's work. It's called um, It's a Feminist Diary. And it's just incredible because all of a sudden she's she's taking pictures of the good bad and the ugly and it's the first time that women were put she's a magnum photographer so yeah. these were these were these were images that that were widely circulated and shown and obviously published later of of the really Unglamorous and unsexy, and the bit of, of of the female life that's normally kept as part of the mystery behind the behind the veil of, of what we present, which is the exact opposite of what um, Sherman was doing, and, and what you were talking about with with Hollywood and glamour and the um, cakes of makeup and scalpels. Um, <laughs> and was there, was there, yeah?
0: And were oh. these were these were these photographs taken in order? Did they have that? Did they have that prescribed purpose? It, it
1: was. It was very much that purpose. So you had Eve Arnold, who was photographing both everyday women and and um, celebrities. So mm-hmm. she, I think
2: of her, and I think of Marilyn Monroe. Yes, portrayed. exactly. Yeah. So that's yeah. really
1: fascinating to me. Which again is like the but idealized. These, these are the published behind the scenes. So between the takes, as she's taking her makeup off, or after she's got off a, a long long haul flight, and she's trying to make herself back up to be Marilyn Monroe in an airport bathroom, um, it all looks a little bit frantic and and, and desperate. Or, or or her sleeping, very candid, unguarded, um, not the posed figure of who we know as as Marilyn the pinup and Marilyn the fantasy. In the same way, she followed Marlene Dietrich um, through what her what her awards season. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Process? Process. Okay, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, Is to get ready. And she actually looks like she's been wrapped. She looks like a corpse wrapped like a mummy in all of the work that they're doing just to get her to be Marilyn Dietrich that you would see as the normal every day. So you've got what Eve Arnold was presenting and then you've got Susan Mazalas who's following a travelling striptease show in the, I believe it's 50s and 60s, wow. through Pennsylvania. I mean, it's some di- it's it's wow. some really desperate, dire sort of... Um,
0: yeah, it's called Carnival Street. Yes right. yeah. they
1: they're gorgeous but they are Disarming. Mm-hmm. They're incredibly disarming. Yeah. So you've got the pictures of what you would consider what the stripper's um, fantasy is and and them performing on stage. And then you have what happens behind the scenes and the, the personal tragedies and the life without the makeup. And um, even because she, she followed these and lived with these women for four years. Whoa. So even showing the progress of what four years of this life did to these women once the makeup stripped off and who they actually are when they're not dressing up to be male pleasing fantasies.
0: And the traveling life and the whole the rest it's, of it. not
1: that interesting? interesting because that's also so much about
2: like consumption and capitalism and like the actual purchase of the image or purchase of the body i think that's another really interesting comparison Mm. with the shaman work yeah exactly
0: it's uh well it's film stars and boxers right always (laughs) patched up and sent back out there you always feel terribly sorry for them i can't help thinking maybe it's just me um kathleen thanks for talking us through unretouched women we should say that that is on at the espace van gogh as part of Le, Le Rencontre uh, the photography festival down in the south of france until the 22nd of september and what's the podcast? Francesca? Um, you must remember this you must remember by going along with, and um, it's
2: currently in a hiatus. But the whole entire archive is there, and gosh, I recommend it.
0: What riches Cindy Sherman has brought on us today! You can catch Cindy Sherman retrospective at the National Portrait Gallery. That's on until the fifteenth of September. Thank you again to my guests today, Kathleen Fox Davis and Francesca Gavin, and of course to my producer Holly Fisher. We'll be back at the same time, same place next week. But for the time being, for me, Robert Bounds, thank you very much
2: for tuning in.